My name is Paul Riley, also known as Political Paul, and this is The Riley Rant, a weekly podcast where we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. Let's rant. Thank you for tuning in to the 31st official episode of The Riley Rant. As was noted in the intro, we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. But what you may not have noticed is that The Riley Rant is currently undergoing a series that I've coined the Bold Move series. If you've been following us, you know that at the end of 2017, I put out an episode entitled podcasting top five takeaways after one year and i had two major goals from that episode the first was to have more guests on the show i felt that in 2017 i could have done a better job of bringing more voices more perspectives onto the show and so i wanted to commit to making 2018 the year for the riley rant where we had diverse perspectives come on and talk about all things political professional and personal but then the second thing i wanted to do was to also ensure that i was continuing to push out content that was relevant for the listeners and so with those two goals in mind having more guests and Pushing out relevant content, I felt like the Bold Move series was a nice way to bridge those two desires and to really keep you all inspired, motivated, and coming back for more week after week. So I really appreciate you tuning in, and I'm really excited to continue the Bold Move series. If you've been following the series, you'll know that this is the third installment of the Bold Move series. We first had Jalen Block come on and talk about his transition from Philadelphia to D.C. to L.A., where he's now pursuing a career in film and television. And then last week, we had Hayden Humphrey come on and talk about his transition from corporate America to photography. So when we look at bold moves, we've seen bold moves across film and television, and then another bold move around photography and freelancing. And so to continue to push out relevant content around bold moves, I'm excited to focus this week's bold move on someone who I admire and respect dearly, who actually made a transition and a bold move into entrepreneurship. And so really, really excited about all the learnings that we're going to get from this episode and really excited to have Samir come on to the show. But before introducing Samir, I want to first, for those of you who may not follow every single episode, I wanted to first highlight what BOLD stands for. So the BOLD Move series is anchored by the BOLD acronym, B-O-L-D. And I want to briefly just tell you what that stands for so that you can understand the guide and the direction for this episode. The B in the bold formula stands for breakthrough. It's my belief that when you're entertaining a bold move, you first have to have a breakthrough, an epiphany, a sudden realization that, oh, I want to do something or something's not right or something's not aligned. That breakthrough is the first step in making that bold move, is that level of awareness to know that something has to change. After the breakthrough, you move on to O, organization. I know there's a problem. I know there's something I need to do. Now, how do I organize my thoughts? How do I strategize and, and really plan out what I'm going to do in the next month, in the next three months, in the next six months? How much time do I have to act on this breakthrough that I just had and organize myself accordingly? After the breakthrough in organization, you then have to L, leverage different perspectives and data points. And during this phase, this is where you will oftentimes consult with Three different buckets. The first bucket being yourself, your gut, checking internally to see how you feel about the opportunity or the decision you're about to make. The second bucket I would categorize as your first and second degree connections. These are your parents, your cousins, your best friend, your mentor, your colleague, someone you look up to in that second bucket who you may leverage for advice and perspective. And then the third bucket is around the spiritual realm, so leveraging your faith or meditation or books or whatever it may be to guide you. But in that leveraging phase, that L phase, You're going through those three different buckets and figuring out what you're going to take and what you're going to use to really inform your decision. And you're going to leverage those data points to D, determine your course of action. And so that's in a nutshell what the BOLD formula is. It's going from breakthrough to organization where you then leverage different perspectives and then determine your course of action. And so with that formula, I'm really excited to have Samir on who's going to share his BOLD move uh, moving from corporate America into entrepreneurship. I'm really, really excited to have Samir on. Samir, how are you? Hey, Paul. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for, for coming on. I'm really excited that we got to make this happen, especially given the fact that you recently made a bold move a few weeks ago uh, in your quest to pursue entrepreneurship full time and with the starting of some ventures that you have. So really excited for you to come on and really excited to dive deeper into your story and your bold move. Thanks a lot, Paul. Excited to be here. So when I think about how I first met Samir, I actually met Samir while at work. We had a new batch of associates coming into the company, and I was informed that Samir would be my buddy. 
And so the buddy responsibilities meant meeting periodically uh, throughout the first couple of months. But it also meant that I had to create a welcome poster welcoming Samir into the company. And so when I began to think about how I was going to do this, I looked at his LinkedIn profile, couldn't find his Facebook, but then I typed his name into Google. And I was so surprised by all that, that came up. Not only did he attend NYU, but he's done some amazing things serving as a Dalai Lama fellow, working with the United Nations, doing a lot of stuff on campus around um, entrepreneurship and, and really inspiring people so much so that poets and quants uh, the website and publication actually did a write-up on him as someone who was a uh, top of, of uh, in their field top in their class in terms of what they've contributed to nyu and to new york city to the united states and to the world more broadly so really really impressed by his background and uh, that was just at the surface though as i got to meet him i began to see that he's more than the accolades and the titles and the accomplishments he's truly someone who People at the company genuinely loved, genuinely wanted to be around, and ultimately uh, really, really valued his feedback and insight and things related to career and life and just his wisdom well beyond his years. So really, really, again, excited to have Samir on. And I know I touched on some of your intro, but would love to have you share just more about yourself, uh, how you got to New York in 2018. What was your path? Paul, thanks for that intro. That's probably one of the the (laughs) nicest ways of (laughs) introducing anything. Uh, so I really appreciate it. Uh, so I'm happy to, you know, touch briefly a bit of my story. So, you know, I was uh, I grew up in New York itself. Actually, I was born in Schenectady, New York. My parents had just immigrated from India, and so I grew up in upstate New York. Um, you know, pretty uneventful background, other than the fact that it was just kind of like an immigrant family figuring out how to make things work in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the first kind of like big inflection point for me was choosing to go to college, um, and where to go to college more specifically because. You know, I knew that was going to be a tough financial burden. I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do something in that kind of social impact realm. Um, and I had the opportunity, as you mentioned, to attend NYU. And it was completely out of, I think, range for me. But I decided at that point to kind of, I guess, take a chance on myself and really pursue the dream. So I went to NYU and intended to study international relations, work on the UN, work at the UN. And, uh, and that's actually what I ended up doing. I worked at the UN and very quickly realized it was not, it was not the path for me. Uh, it seemed a bit a bit too kind of like bureaucratic and a bit too removed from impact for me. And I very quickly from there delved into entrepreneurship, um, which kind of defined the rest of my college career and life since then. Um, about four years ago, I founded an uh, organization called Transformation, uh, where we partner with events around New York City and ensure that excess food goes to support homeless shelters and soup kitchens throughout New York City. And mm-hmm. I think like building an organization along with my co-founder and one of my closest friends, Hannah, uh, was kind of the equivalent of my college degree. Uh, because I would spend all my time kind of doing research, understanding how to build a company, missing classes to go to meetings and, you know, literally pick up food from events and bring it to different shelters and soup kitchens. Um, and I kind of captured this entrepreneurship bug and just realized I really wanted to live this life of impact and purpose and vision. Um, and then somewhere along that path, I got an opportunity to interview with LinkedIn. I made a random connection on LinkedIn and had the chance to interview and fell in love with the mission and vision of kind of creating economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. And to me, as someone that's a founder mindset, the idea of working at a company that was able to take a vision and a mission and scale it was incredibly exciting. And anyone in the nonprofit or social impact world always wishes they had resources. And so this was the opportunity to see what social impact could be like when you actually have resources and um, people behind it. And so, you know, I had a chance to work at LinkedIn where I had the opportunity to meet Paul among many other terrific, wonderful people. And um, my LinkedIn experience was absolutely stellar. I, uh, had the chance to work across the New York office, then moved to San Francisco and Sunnyvale. And then uh, for the past year, I had the opportunity to work in Dublin and London and just travel around the world a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, Paul, I'm sure we'll dig more into like what prompted the move and whatnot. But at some point, I uh, had a realization as my kind of LinkedIn career took off and my entrepreneurship career was kind of continuing to move that these two halves of my lives were getting more and more disparate and disconnected. And, you know, that kind of begged um, me to make a choice or kind of let uh, take the risk of both of them kind of falling through. And what I realized was, you know, I really enjoy what I do at LinkedIn and I love the people I worked with, but it was the choice between something that was really good and comfortable versus the dream. And uh, I decided to make the chance uh, and go for the dream. And that was um, working full-time on the second social enterprise I founded, which is called Susu. Uh, and we started that about 18 months ago to help fix um, finance and access to capital and um, building credit in America because it's a system that's so broken for so many communities, especially immigrants and low-income families, and mm-hmm. this is an issue that I just felt so passionately about. Um, so 
with that transition, I, I kind of gave my manager at LinkedIn's a heads up about eight months in advance um, and figured out a way to kind of make that transition a win for me, the company, and you know everyone that I worked for. And then as of January 1st, just moved to New York and am uh, full-time on the startup grind now. That's probably 40, but... No, no, no. That, that's, that's amazing context. Really appreciate you sharing that story. Um, and your story about how you went from these different aspects of your life. I wanted to go back quickly to your, your discussion around working for the United Nations, realizing that it wasn't for you, and then moving directly into entrepreneurship. How did you sort of get the cues or the signals that the UN wasn't right for you? And then how did you dovetail into entrepreneurship and then find a corporate environment along the way? Was there any tension? Or was it like, I don't like this extreme, let me go to the completely polar opposite extreme and explore that? What was that thinking like? Yeah, Paul, that's that's a really good question. So I think, you know, in my mind, I'd idolized the UN for a long time. And when I started working there, um, it was still a terrific organization. And I think what really stood out was the people. Like, there's something really special about going and standing on uh, 42nd and 1st Ave, where you hear 20 different languages and you're literally in, still in America, right? So there's still something really special about the UN. But what I realized is that you know, the people that get to do the sorts of activities that I really felt the UN was um, meaningful for are people that have been there for 20 to 30 years. It's really like kind of like a work your way up the chain. And really what was what they weren't lacking was a bunch of political science and international relations graduates who were just young <laughs> and passionate, right? That was like every single other person I met there. <laughs> it was like a robot or a prototype. <laughs> yeah, literally they had like a feature and you'd have these kind of like masters and PhD students that were doing literally the exact same thing that I was doing. And uh, that kind of one was a red flag to me. But the other thing was, you know, like I was incredibly passionate about social impact and that's what the UN was all about. But when you're working in the institution itself, there's just levels of disconnect between people on the ground that really need your help mm -hmm. and what you're doing, which is kind of much more in the political realm and much more kind of discussion and dialogue and congregation. And sometimes it's difficult to connect that to the actual impact you want to have. And two, um, my biggest project at the UN ended up being fixing the database system. We, and we were using a system that was entirely Excel spreadsheets and my suggestion was, why don't we move this to the cloud? It might make sense to use Salesforce or something like that. And uh, fortunately, I was in a small office and they were like, cool, do it. <laughs> but through that process, I really quickly learned that what was missing was kind of like business aptitude and a technical uh, skill set. Mm -hmm. And people who were entering the UN with that skill set were kind of the people that were really rising to the top quickly that didn't need necessarily like 30 to 40 years of kind of working their way up the food chain. And so what I realized was, you know, this doesn't seem to be the right fit, but I'm not ready to give up on it entirely. It seems like I can kind of try this business and technology side of things. And even if that isn't the path for me, it actually still offers me a really good way to get back into the UN at an advantaged position. Yeah, um, I love that. I love how you're talking about, like, you had the experience, it gave you a certain feeling. And what I'm beginning to sense is that a data point was sort of stored, save this in my folder as a sort of data point for me to remember. I didn't really like this. Let me continue to explore before I completely throw out the option altogether. And I think that's so important when you think about people considering decisions. It's oftentimes, oh, I hated this. I have to do something completely different now when it's, I think, more nuanced than that. It's more, I didn't like this aspect of this type of work in this type of industry. Let me not cancel out the entire industry, the entire type of work. Let me just try to shift my angle and my perspective in the work that I'm doing. So I kind of love that initial wisdom that you seem to have about the opportunity and helping it inform your future decisions. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to look at it. I also just kind of be super optimistic, so that might be part of it. You know, <laughs> yeah. focus on the silver lining, which was the good parts. But I do agree. I, I tend to be pretty like strategic, especially when it comes to career and job stuff. And I think if we're going to go with kind of the way that you laid out thinking about it, what I realized I loved was still that opportunity to be around people that were passionate about social impact and to do something that has kind of like a greater impact on society. And so that's kind mm -hmm. of what led me to entrepreneurship because it was like, I can still continue this focus on impact. I can still be surrounded by high um, kind of like energy and passion people, but I can be much more directly involved and much more hands-on and don't need to kind of do the whole work your way up the chain thing. Yeah, and I think that, that provides a nice segue into getting into your bold move. So to start, I did some Facebook stalking and I came across a post that you shared on your Facebook page at around 2 a.m. on New Year's Day. And I wanted to share it for the listeners to get a sense of and frame your timeline of how you made this bold move. You note kicking off the new year the right way with a move back to New York City. I couldn't be more grateful for the past year in Dublin, London, and across Europe. 2017 has been a pretty transformational year for me with new experiences, lifelong friendships, traveling the world, and clarity in what's next. As much as I'll treasure this year, there's no place I'd rather be than New York for 2018. Happy New Year. Wishing you 
each an energizing, fulfilling, and productive 2018. So I love that quote, and I love the line at the end of that second paragraph where you say, and now I have clarity on what's next. So maybe walk us through the initial rumblings that led you to that be in the boat formula, your breakthrough. How did you begin to gain this clarity on what was next and why was New York City the next move? And, and how did you figure out that the breakthrough was now and needed to happen now, January 1st, 2018? Thanks, Paul. Um, I appreciate you digging up that post and sharing it as well. I um, So I think that's a, that's a pretty nuanced question for me. Um, so at this point, when I first started to think about this, you know, I think anyone that could have possibly hired me, I think knew that half of my heart was in entrepreneurship. So this wasn't like, you know, necessarily a transformation out of the blue. Mm -hmm. But I think what really did it for me was actually the opportunity to kind of take on what was like a dream job for me at LinkedIn. So um, at the end of 2017, I had an opportunity to take a role that one was highly strategic and kind of like really fast paced moving and had a lot of the elements that I really saw in entrepreneurship. And then also gave me the chance to move to Europe and just have that life experience of living abroad. Um, so it was really a win-win as far as the corporate world was concerned. And I got into this role and it was going really well. I um, ended up kind of picking up um, a couple of different people's roles and really taking on a leadership role much sooner than would have been expected and really noticed that I was kind of starting to get on this fast track, uh, which was really exciting. But it also meant my kind of job was turning into more of a 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. job. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, I was working on building a company. And uh, so that was the first thing that kind of stood out to me where it was like I – when I first joined LinkedIn, I really had the ability to kind of manage building one or two organizations and my day job and do it without feeling like I was completely letting one or the other drop. And at this stage, it was becoming more and more clear that in order to continue excelling in one, the other would have to kind of go by the wayside. So that was indicator number one. I think number two was, you know, now I'm on this path and I see the opportunity to kind of grow here at LinkedIn and take on more responsibility and leadership. And I was really enjoying what I was doing and the people I was working with, but what I really didn't particularly care about was the progression path. Um, so for me, kind of just getting promoted, getting a salary raise, moving up two or three levels, becoming a director, becoming a VP, and all of that, that actually just didn't really mean too much to me. That, like, sounds, like a, that sounds like a theme from the UN, where you're like, I don't want to do this hierarchy. It seems like those same themes are bubbling up in, in your breakthrough. Yeah, it's a good parallel. I guess um, the it's not so much about the time because what I realized is what I love about the job won't change with a promotion or a hierarchy. And I also enjoy doing new things. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of like doing the same thing. Actually, it's interesting. Reed Hoffman has this podcast as well. Um, kind of about entrepreneurs. And one of the things he talked about is kind of like people who just love to learn and do new things. And I was listening to this episode and I realized it was very much like me. I think doing the same thing for any amount of time to me just starts to feel um, stagnant. And I kind of enjoy being in a position where I'm just off the deep end. Um, so I think I was loving the part of this role where it was just all new and I kind of was having curveballs thrown at me left and right, but realized that the reward of another five years of this in terms of just like promotions and pay raises wasn't really exciting for me. And so it was kind of like understanding that as well was another data point. And then I think uh, the third thing was kind of this company that we had started at Susu, like we were really starting to see traction there. Um, I was getting more kind of um, requests from investors. There's a similar company, not exactly the same, but kind of a similar concept based in Europe that just raised $7 million. Oh, wow. FinTech up like crazy. So the indicators were there. It was kind of clear that I'd have to make this pivot now. Otherwise, we'd kind of lose this opportunity and this momentum. Um, so all of that came together. And it was just what, what it came down to, I think I mentioned earlier, was a choice between something that was really good and something that was comfortable versus like, this is the dream. And there's nothing I love more than building something that I think can help people and really kind of throwing myself off the deep end in that way. And that's what led me to make the choice. Um, I spoke to my manager, my direct manager about it in April. And, um, the goal for me there was really, how do I make this transition, but also make sure that this is a win for my team and LinkedIn, because the company really has given me a lot. And I don't think there's another corporate entity I'd rather work for. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I want to do is kind of burn those bridges or let that be derailed or let my team down. Mm -hmm. So, so I think the one thing that I wasn't sure about was taking a chance and letting uh, anyone really know that I was planning on leaving a company eight months out because it could be one of those scenarios where it's just like, well, hey, your last day is in two weeks. <laughs> yeah. and so that was a concern, but I uh, I think I took that, as we said, at LinkedIn Intelligent Risk, and it really panned out. I actually continued to get increased responsibility and learn and grow over the next eight months. And then I think I was still apprehensive about this move until the day that I actually submitted my resignation letter, which was November 15th for a one-month notice. And um, I think at that point, you just feel this sense of calm and clarity and it's just like, what's next? And that, that felt really good. It was like, 
maybe I made the right choice, maybe I didn't, but right now I know exactly what I'm doing and I know why I'm doing it and I'm ready to see where this ride takes me. Definitely, and when you talk about informing your boss and, and informing your superiors about this decision, how did you settle on being transparent and proactive in your approach? Now you talk about not wanting to burn bridges and things of that sort, but for listeners who may be on the cusp of a breakthrough, what advice would you have for them as they navigate do I stay in this corporate role or do I phase myself out? How do I phase myself out in a way that's uh, reasonable for the team where I'm not burning bridges, but also that provides security for me? And as before you answer that, I also wanted to touch on a post that you wrote on LinkedIn in August of 2017 where you sort of touch on these topics. You say, do I take the risk and jump for the unknown? Do I stay the course and maintain stability? Or do I swap my environment for another that is both fresh and very similar? Today's professionals in the workplace can be distilled into the above options. In other words, leaving for a startup or launching your own, staying with the company or swapping companies for a similar environment and an increased paycheck. There are plenty of shades in between, but these are the core options available. With the explosion of options available, knowing when and where to take your next step has become an art in itself. How do I balance desires and goals with the security and stability of the opportunities available? How do I identify the right ones to take a risk on? And so I think my previous question around how do you inform your boss or your superior, but then also how did you weigh in the paycheck, the stability, the security, and, and really going all out on this risk? That kind of perspective will be extremely helpful for listeners. Thanks, Paul. Uh, so I think I'll, I'll start with the second question first because it's, it's I think, the more um, kind of like deeper question that I imagine more people are grappling with. Uh, so I think there's two pieces of advice that I picked up actually secondhand from podcasts that really resonated with me. The first is something that Peter Thiel said, who I don't necessarily agree with on everything, but I think this piece of advice is actually one of the more brilliant things I've ever heard. Uh, it's, it's kind of like asking yourself, whatever your five-year plan is, why can't you do that in six months? Wow. Um, and I think usually people, when they ask themselves that question, they realize they can, or they realize that there's very, or they kind of aren't sure, and they realize they've never thought about what's stopping them from accomplishing that within five years. So for me, it was like, that's one thing that I would always recommend people think about. Like, a lot of times I think, um, I've heard it on some of your previous podcasts, Paul, and uh, kind of a lot of young professionals, it's, I'm not ready for this, I need to learn XYZ skills, or I need to do this, and I'd always challenge you to ask yourself why, and like, what is it specifically that you think you're lacking right now that's preventing you from doing what you want to be doing in 2020 or 2025? And if you don't have a clear answer, or you haven't taken the time to actually identify what those specific things are, I would highly recommend doing that. And the second thing is, and this is more around risk, it's something that's on, I think, Tim Ferriss's podcast, but it's, you know, like, what's your downside? Um, you know, anyone that's kind of working in a corporate environment or has, like, a kind of stable job that doesn't have kind of demands like, um, you know, like having kids or having to take care of a family member, like, don't get me wrong, I have a lot of student loans, I don't necessarily have a financial situation where anyone can back me up, but in my mind, I take a chance, I leave my job, and everything falls apart. I know I can get a job. I might not love it. I might not be as happy as I was, but my, my downside isn't being on the street. And I think a lot of people delude themselves into thinking that it is. Um, if you have, if you have friends, if you have people that are willing to step up for you, even if you're in a difficult financial situation or you have a ton of loans, or you don't have a lot of like family support, there's always ways to kind of make it work. And so, you know, I think you got to question whether the downside is really so significant that you would kind of pass up on something like your dream or something that you might regret. Because I would rather take a chance on living, you know, two or three years in a situation I'm not as happy or that's a real struggle, knowing that I took the chance for what I really wanted to do than uh, not taking that chance in the first place. Uh, that, that's amazing. And I think when you look at uh, the second episode within the series with, with Hayden Humphrey, he sort of touches on the very same thing where he's talking about, you know, if I take this risk, if it falls apart, there is an opportunity for me to get back to where I was before I left. And so he, he had this sort of security in knowing that, the onus was on him to take the risk and that uh, if he was this passionate about the bold movie he was going to take, he could be just as passionate about getting back into the corporate world if it led to that. And so I think that it was interesting to see those parallel themes arise. But you sort of provide a nice segue into the O, the organization aspect. So it's very clear that it's time to go. It's very clear the breakthrough has emerged. You want to pursue entrepreneurship full time. You talk about how there was this 50-50 balance or 40-60 balance with your day job and the entrepreneurship and it became distorted. How did you organize your, yourself around really making this jump? Did the timelines help? Did the, the six-month, eight-month notice help to get that timeline, that fire under you to say, I got to move? Walk us through your organization phase. Yeah, Paul, I'm happy to do that. Actually, 
before I jump into that, there's something you mentioned earlier about how to talk to your um, boss about that or kind of how to make that. And I'll touch on this really quickly, um, but I think it's important. Um, the number one thing that I learned is when you're talking about making a transition that impacts um, other people, it's never about you. So whenever you have a conversation with a superior or someone else, it's all about them. You know, like the way that I framed my eight months was I want to help this team get through planning, which is the most difficult process this has. And then I want to think about what's next for me. And when you kind of frame it like that, I think people kind of appreciate that you're thinking about them. And it's not just like I've made this decision that impacts me and I don't really care about how it impacts everyone else. So that's my real quick um, spiel on that. But in terms of preparation, I think I was fortunate that timelines kind of uh, did help me out. Because at the end of my year in Dublin, I would have to make a decision about whether or not to permanently stay in Dublin uh, and kind of go through that whole like life relocation process. And then also from like a job position, it would be time where I'd start thinking about, you know, one of those kind of things like a promotion or, you know, stepping up into kind of like officializing the uh, added responsibilities I'd taken on. And in my mind, those are kind of also golden handcuffs in a way, because for someone like me, if I get a promotion or you know, um, kind of get placed in a new position. I feel like now I have to go earn it. I have to go do this thing for one or two years and then you're kind of stuck in the same thing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of plagues a lot of people in the finance industry too. Um, <laughs> I wanted to, uh, I wanted to avoid that altogether and realize this would be the best time to make a break before, you know, I kind of like take advantage of like a, a higher salary and don't kind of like live up to my expectations or before I go through the major life hurdles of relocating somewhere else. Um, the other piece in preparation for me though was, you know, this would be a really difficult move for me financially. Um, I still have significant student loans. Um, you know, our company is bootstrapping, so it's not like I have an expectation of earned income. So in preparation, I did two things. One, I figured out how I could make my expenses nothing. And two, I figured out how I could make some incremental income as we kind of bootstrap this and raise our seed round of funding. Um, so to make my expenses zero, there's a few things. I reached out to a bunch of people I knew in New York City and was really fortunate to have four or five friends who said, you know what, you're taking this big risk. I'm happy to put you up for two to four weeks and like, you know, it's all good. Um, so I don't have to pay rent for my first four months. Oh, that's while. amazing. And yeah, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm used to living out of a suitcase with all the travel from Europe and <laughs> yeah. house from like, you know, 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. So I'm hoping that it won't turn into a conflict, but so far so good. Um, and then as you know, Paul, we get a fitness budget at LinkedIn um, and a couple other kind of like different sorts of budgets. And so I used my 2017 fitness budget to buy all my fitness for 2018, including you know, like a gym membership, biking classes, boxing classes, all of the above, because I do want to stay on top of my health. Um, and then we have a Bravo points budget, which is essentially just like a reward system from other employees. And I use that to basically buy a large Amazon gift card that's now my checking account. And <laughs> wow. Then, so uh, you've, done a, you've done a lot of uh, planning and, and strategic around the zero cost. Yeah, exactly. And so really the only thing I'm paying for is essentially dinner was with friends or something like that. I My health care, I applied for Obamacare, um, all of those things. And so that really helped me out. And then the second thing is my friend and I incorporated the consulting business a couple of years back. And so we just kind of let it be dormant, but I quickly picked it back up and networked with a few of my friends that are in the same space and am now kind of bringing in a couple clients and planning on partnering with other consultants. So that way it's not a big kind of time commitment for me on a weekly basis, but it's still bringing in, um, you know, a few thousand dollars a month. So I'm not, you know, if I need to pay for something for a SUSU or, you know, you have one of those unexpected life events, I'm not just kind of hung out to dry. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I've been thinking about in the preparation stage. And I think with the consulting, it's kind of funny because at the UN, you were basically a consultant driving them to the cloud-based solutions. And so it's funny that that <laughs> sort of stayed with you. All these years later, you're now consulting and, and helping people create strategies and, and build and grow their, their platforms, whatever endeavors they have. But my, <laughs> my question in the, in the preparation phase, uh, after hearing what you talked about, was centered on Going back to when you were talking about the breakthrough, the research phase, and you begin to see that other companies were getting seed funding, what research did you do to determine that you know this company was the one that was going to be the, the one where you took your risk? And then ultimately, how did you decide on New York? Because I've been looking at a lot of your posts, and you seem to have this love for New York. I know that you grew up right outside of New York. I know that you had this affinity. You went to NYU. You seem to have this love for New York, and I'm curious to... Also understand, after doing all that research on the company, the solution, where you fit in the marketplace, how did you ultimately end up choosing the city? Uh, because many would say, oh, startup, entrepreneurship, why not Silicon Valley? We'd love to get your thoughts on those two things. Yeah, thanks, Paul. So um, in terms of like deciding, kind of doing the market research on the company, I think you know when you're a startup founder and you create something, you kind of put in a lot of effort for no return. Um, so you kind of really have to love what you're doing. 
you know, you have to really believe in it and you have to care deeply about it. And I think when you're doing that, you're kind of just like eating, living and breathing, whatever it is that your company does. So for us, it was all about kind of economic access, uh, financial empowerment, fintech, um, social impact, like those were the themes. And so that was also the content that I was constantly ingesting. It was almost like second nature to me. So anytime there was kind of like a big fintech IPO, anytime there was kind of like a big breakthrough in financial access, microfinance, um, blockchain, those sorts of things, I was kind of all over it. So it was kind of just like, my Google feed, my LinkedIn feed, all of those things are just naturally plugging in content. Mm -hmm. But two, um, the past 12 months, I was double hatting. So I was still working on building this. You could just tell um, part of it's a gut feel, right? Like you're seeing an increased interest from investors, from potential users, from your peer set. And then part of it's also research. Like you see the trends where it's like VC funding in fintech is increasing or wow, there's all these new consumer fintech and financial applications, but none of them are really solving this massive pain point for so many kind of immigrants, um, lower socioeconomic people, college students, the demographic we're really serving. So we kind of saw that this market and space was heating up, but the area of it that we were trying to solve was still underserved. Um, and I guess the third piece was there's other people that were starting to enter this marketplace and do something similar to what we were doing, which to some people would be like, oh my God, help me. But actually that was really exciting for us because it kind of validated one that, you know, that we weren't like kind of crazy, in my opinion, any good idea is something that other people will think of. What it really comes down to is execution. Um, so seeing those kind of like that competitive landscape increase, it was like, okay, this is good. We're onto something here. Clearly other people are seeing this opportunity. Yeah. There's no market leader. No one had actually captured, which meant that we had an opportunity to just crush it in terms of how we build this company and how we segment our users and how we create this product to really win this market. And could, um, and could you go into more detail around what, the, what your company is seeking to do? And I know you were sort of talking about the differentiation, but I think the users would gain value from understanding what your solution is and what you're trying to, to place in the marketplace. Absolutely. Um, that should be the first thing I talk about, really. Um, so basically with Asusu, what we're trying to solve is that the American kind of financial system is not working for a lot of people when it comes to how they save their income, how they manage their cash flows, and how they think about building credit. And in a lot of parts of the kind of emerging world, there's a grassroots solution called rotational savings where people form groups and they pool their money together in a trusted community. And then every single kind of month or every other week, one person in the community takes out the full fund of money. And the idea is that it's a way for them to kind of pay for big ticket items and also build financial resilience for when they do get faced with big challenges. Um, so for instance, this was something that my grandmother would use actually to kind of help provide for my family when my parents were growing up in India. And that's how I first learned of it. Similarly, my co-founder's mother used it to actually afford his education and send him to America from Nigeria. So it was something that we kind of had personal experience with. Um, and what our product does is actually digitize the system because about 2 billion people use it and none of it's tracked. It's not measured anywhere. And so when we kind of built this, this savings product, we're kind of giving these people an easier way to facilitate the solution that they know works, but then we're also able to help them track it and use this as a way for them to build a build their credit scores and build a financial identity. Um, because right now your credit relies on things like how long have you had a kind of mortgage or a car loan, which is something that if you're starting from zero is really difficult unless you come off from wealth or you've been living in America a long time. And so our platform will allow us to go to a credit bureau or a bank or another institution and say, look, this person doesn't have a huge credit rating or a credit score, but what they do have is 10 people that trust them with their money. And they do have this um, kind of self-driven nature to create better habits for themselves. And then if you look at them on their platform, they've been successful for the last three years in savings money and building a financial future of their own. And so that's something that we can use as an alternative way to validate trust for banks and other institutions. So that's that amazing. was a Thanks. Thanks, Paul. So that was a mouthful, but simply we're just trying to help create better pathways to financial access and resilience for American consumers, specifically targeting um, immigrants, college students, and kind of people that the people that are struggling to make those kind of connections right now. And so the thinking is that once you, so if you have, let's say I have 10 people who trust me with the money, I'll be able to save that money or use it for big purchases. And then, and Mike, is the person who received the money, are they ever contributing into the pool in the rotation or, or how is it different from the rotational example you used earlier? So it's actually the exact same thing as a rotational example. It's just a digitized version. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, when you form a group, everyone makes a commitment to pay a certain amount into the pot at, at, at an, on an interval. So essentially, like, let's say it's you know me, you, and the last five podcast guests you've had for a group of you know, seven people. Mm -hmm. Terrible to choose, but seven people. Um, and everyone commits to putting in $500 each month. So month one, you would take the $3,500 pot and maybe use it to take the Riley rant to the next level. 
Month two, I would take the $3,500 pot and use it to kind of build out a susu. Month three, maybe Hayden would take out the $3,500 pot and use it to kind of revamp his photography website or buy a new camera that he needs to launch his business. Um, so it's kind of a way for people to make those kind of big life decisions, actually to kind of make things like bold moves um, if we're using your framework and, and to kind of uh, have a community of people they trust support them. And I think that's so needed. I think when you look at um, the, the, the things that have been happening, when you look at particularly uh, black and brown and minority communities with payday lending, predatory lending by Wells Fargo and other banks, and, and really unbanked in, uh, populations being prevalent in many of America's cities. And so I think that when you talk about making this change, I think it's going to do a lot of good because there's a lot of structural issues where, you know, we place a, a check cashing place on the corner versus a bank. And then when we place a bank in these neighborhoods, you have to have a certain amount of money to to use the bank and to not pay any fees. And so the barriers to entry are oftentimes so high. And then you have the check cashing and predatory lending that many people don't have relief or no way of pulling themselves out of the economic cycle that is higher and higher interest rates, higher and higher fees, little to no savings. So I see the value in it. Um, and when you begin to realize this value in the organization phase, did you at any point have subjects or use cases to solidify the business model before making the jump or how did you test the the success of or the potential success of the business while you were in that organization phase it's a great question paul first of all the last two minutes while you were speaking i don't know if you can see it but i was just nodding and completely appreciate your insight on the subject um so if there is an industry that we were looking to completely disrupt it would be payday lending and predatory loans um so that you kind of nailed it with that um in terms of how we tested it out there's a few things right like this system is so common throughout the developing and emerging world that we saw that track record of success. So that was a good indicator because so many people are comfortable and familiar with it um, and they kind of trust it. So that was kind of our first big indicator. I think the second thing was just the financial stats in America where um, there's a report released in um, 2017 which basically stated that 57% of American adults are financially unhealthy, which means that they're unable to make their kind of financial ends meet on a month-to-month basis. And then there's a lot of literature being published around the fact that the the real death of the American dream is around um, around cash flow and an ability to predict where income is coming and how you have it because people are getting trapped in these cycles, like you mentioned, where they will essentially have enough money to make ends meet one month, but then the next month their job isn't secure enough so they don't know where they're going to get their income and then they rely on a payday loan, which has like 150% interest yeah. and that's kind of stuck in this cycle. So we were getting a lot of literature on that and then we also propped up a bunch of kind of paper pencil groups and just kind of ran them manually. So we, as in my co-founder and I, just served as the kind of banking institution for these paper pencil groups and just observed what happened. What were the dynamics there? Like how much trust was needed? What were the issues people ran into? Um, and really kind of saw those use cases and saw it be successful and also kind of got more into the mind of our user and realized that we have a massive opportunity here. Yeah, that's great. That's great to hear. I, I'm sold on the on the model and I'm really excited to see uh, where this all goes and, and really excited that this bold moves uh, not only going to benefit you because sometimes when people make bold moves it's like self-focused I'm doing this for me because I have this dream for myself it's really inspiring to hear that the bold move that you have for yourself is not only developing yourself and, and becoming a better person a better business person a better entrepreneur but also impacting uh, the most vulnerable and all forgotten in, in society I love that the bold moves not just confined to you so so we got a sense of the breakthrough you then decide eight months out, you know, the work and the entrepreneurship. I, have, I can't have them both at this point. I'm, you know, ignoring one and prioritizing the other. So we know that we have to make this move. You then organize to say, November 15th, I'm giving my notice. I'm in New York, January 1st, 2018. And, and we got an understanding of how you organize your thoughts, understanding the business model that you wanted to pursue, having your zero or your, your zero base budgeting where you basically are going to spend as little as possible uh, through being scrappy and strategic and and how you approach living and and classes and and benefits that you accrued through work. How did you then get to leveraging different perspectives? And when I looked at the Poets and Quants article on you, uh, which I referenced at the top of the episode, which was published in December 2015, you you noted something that piqued my interest. You said, I knew I wanted to major in business when I realized it was the reason most nonprofits and startups failed. And so it seems as you begin to leverage different perspectives, it was important for you to understand and study business and potentially work in business. And then, I don't know if you remember, but in that organization phase, you also said something that I loved that was so relevant to 
the leveraging different perspectives bucket where you basically said, I don't know, my gut was just telling me that this was the right thing to do. So what perspectives did you use? Was it the business education? Was it working in corporate America? Was it your gut? I talked about the buckets at the top of the episode too around self, family, friends, and spiritual guidance. What did you leverage as you realized you were making this bold move? So I think a big part of it comes down to self in this case because I think you know, like taking risks and like kind of jumping off the platform isn't something that really comes naturally when you're part of an immigrant family. Um, it's it's really uh, it's a really conservative mindset, right? It's figure out how to get a job, be stable, be secure, like keep your head down, get stuff done. Um, and so for me, I think early on, I kind of had to develop this really strong belief in myself, which was really hard. It was actually what made me fall in love with New York City. Just something else you asked about was that was the place where I kind of found the ability to trust myself and take chances and risks on myself, which wasn't something I really had the capacity to do before, um, whether through self-doubt or insecurities. And I think being in New York is what helped me kind of build that self-foundation where it was like, I can take a chance on myself and believe in my capabilities to do something, even if it seems like the odds are against me. Um, so why, that was, why, why was that? And, and I also asked earlier, sort of, why New York over San Francisco? Why, why was that the case? Was it the energy of the people, seeing others going after it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, I think I think a lot of people can relate to growing up in a town where you're not necessarily inspired. And also, like, I think, like, high school is just, like, a weird time in a lot of people's lives. So I think it's kind of like when you hit that early adolescent stage where you kind of, I think, like, people think of home in two ways. They think of home as in, like, where their family is, which is one type of home for me. And then there's another type of home, which is, like, the city that you first kind of, like, grow up in as, like, an adult. And I think that was New York for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of things there from like as simple as getting on top of my health and fitness and like kind of like those sorts of more personal things to creating my first business and failing and being successful and failing and being successful and kind of building resilience from that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also think like you nailed it on the head, like New York, you have an insane peer set. Everyone you meet is kind of firing all cylinders at all times. You know, it's the cliche, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. And for me, that level of just kind of excellence uh, helped me propel myself to an even higher level just to like stand out. It was, it was the most simple things. Like it, it sounds absurd, but like don't wear shorts when you go out for like dinner, you know, those aren't things that you necessarily learn in like podunk wherever, but you do learn them living in a big city and kind of just like everyone around you is kind of like nailing it on every single aspect of their life mm-hmm. from like the personal to the cultural, to the health and fitness, to then the business, to the education, to those elements. Um, so I think that was, you know, something that I really learned a lot about in New York. And then why not San Francisco um, versus New York, I think. So I didn't personally really like San Francisco as much as a lot of other people do. So I think, you know, when you're kind of pushing yourself on an extreme in one end, it's important to make sure that the environment you're in is something that feels supportive to you. Mm-hmm. And San Francisco, mm-hmm. to me, um, it just felt like people were doing entrepreneurship to do entrepreneurship. And uh, there seemed to be a disconnect from the types of issues that I was really strongly in favor of trying to fix and solve you know like every person i would talk to would talk about building another co-working space which is great like don't get me wrong like co-working spaces are phenomenal but you're also you know in a time when there is a lot of social justice issues and there is a lot of things to be figured out and even like new technologies and things to explore like just making another co-working space didn't really seem like um the type of community that i wanted to engage with it was just it just felt like people were doing entrepreneurship because they felt like they had to do entrepreneurship in san francisco mm-hmm. um so I didn't, I don't know, that vibe just didn't hit me and never really fell in love with the city the way I did New York. But two for New York, I mean, it's where my team is, it's where our users are, and it's where I have the strongest personal and professional networks. Yeah. So for me, it was a position of strength where I could come in and be, have the greatest chance of success. Like I have the most factors in my favor from like a product team and personal network standpoint in New York to be successful. Um, so that was why I ended up choosing that city. I would have kind of overcame like my personal like dislike for san francisco in some ways but um i think the kind of like business and personal advantages to new york were too much for me to pass on definitely and in your your previous segment when you were talking you were talking about how growing up you know the the expectation and not necessarily you never said it was coming from your parents specifically but you did allude to this belief that you know put your head down work get a job make some money where was that coming from was that coming from family was that coming from friends was that coming from self where did where did that that thinking come from and how did you sort of push past that that thinking of like just get a job become secure do your work you know put your head down keep it moving how, where did that come from and how did you push past it 
so I think, uh, you know, part of that obviously comes from your family and your parents, I think. And, I, and honestly, it's a perspective I really respect because, um, you know, they had to do a lot to get to where they are and coming to America and immigrating from another country, incredibly difficult. And I, mm-hmm. I very much value and appreciate that perspective. Um, and I think it's also taken them time, but now they have a different perspective as well, which is exciting to see. Um, and then also, like, you see what your friends and your peers are doing, which is kind of like, um, you know, finding a job, like focusing on everything but their job kind of a thing where, you know, I meet a lot of people who kind of live for Friday to Sunday. Yeah. Um, and it's just like a job is a way to get to the weekend. Um, and that was that was kind of like what I was coming from. And when I uh, moved to New York, I just met a lot of people that were really passionate and inspired by what they were doing. And that was something I wanted for myself too, to wake up every day and be excited about what I was going to do and do something I love because so much of your life is working that I feel like you almost, you know, it's it, you're not doing anyone a favor if you hate it or don't enjoy it or appreciate what you're doing. And I think that's I think that's a great point. And I think what I've noticed over the course of the last three episodes, this included, it's this question of how do you, in this leveraging different perspectives phase, how do you internalize and take in the advice of people who have your best interest at heart and oftentimes that best interest can materialize and manifest itself as risk aversion, as playing it safe, because people truly care about your safety and your well-being and, and wanting you to be quote-unquote successful. And so it's like, how do you accept that perspective, even if it's challenging your your bold move decision, uh, while still acknowledging that they're, they're coming from a good place and not lashing out and getting angry and saying, they don't understand, they just won't, they don't believe in me or they're terrible people. How do, how do you push past that? What advice do you have for people who are going through that right now, grappling with, how do I tell my family? How do I tell my friends? How do I accept their disapproval and, and really get past it in a way that you understand that it's coming from a place of them really caring about you and, and not the opposite? Uh, yeah, so I think there's I think there's three things on that point. I think the first is when you're in those conversations, like don't react. Take a second, take a breath, think about it, think about where they're coming from, why they have the perspective they have, because you know you have a perspective that's based on the experiences you've had in your life, and someone else has a completely different perspective because of it. And I think it's very important that you don't lash out because you're feeling insecure, you're nervous about this move too, right? Because that's usually where a lot of that lash out comes out from is you're yourself feeling a bit insecure, and then someone just kind of like hits that spot um, and they might be coming from a pace of love, but it seems like they're just attacking you. And it's important to not let that reflex um, kind of take over, but like just take a step back. Um, and then I think from there, I think one is to be open about like why you're doing it. Uh, I think a lot of people fail to be really um, elaborative and speak kind of about what it is that's making them take this risk and this chance and the thinking they've put into it. And instead just say, this is my choice. Like you don't have a right to influence it or why are you like attacking me for it? Right. They, immediately go on the defensive. And I think it's important to be open and say, you know, like I'm taking this chance because, you know, this is like something I really love to do or because I was miserable here and I think I'll be more successful doing something I really enjoy. Or, you know, I think this is always going to be a difficult transition and this is the time where I have the lowest risk. So this seems like the best time to take a risk. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever your rationale might be, I think it's important to be open to questions and kind of also share. And then the third piece is, I think you also need to, think about their concern and spend some time mitigating it. Like I, I love to downside protect, but I always like to think about having one or two or three backup plans. And if you can for yourself, I think it's important. Well, yeah. If you're in a position where that's, where that's something you need, where people are concerned about you because you don't necessarily have a safety net, it's then important to then create those kind of backup plans. And also that might help those conversations too, where it's like, look, if I don't get this thing here, five people I know I can reach out to, to get a job or, you know, if this doesn't work out, here's how I can kind of manage my expenses for five months. Or, you know, I'm also going to take this part-time job just to make sure that I'm not like totally, you know, sunk. So I think it's important to kind of have those backup plans and different options. And that'll also make those conversations where people are concerned um, a lot easier. I think it's simple and in terms of a quick framework, it's like not reacting, being open and, you know, demonstrating your thinking. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, you're wise beyond your years. And I love the maturity that you provided and, and really assessing that because I think when you talk about bold moves, these are very charged and emotional topics. These are you know things that if you're making a bold move, you've likely been thinking about for a very long time. You've likely thought about the risk and the reward, the potential downfall, the potential uh, possibilities of success. And, you know, for that reason, these perspectives that you leverage, you know, if they are not on accord with the desire that you have, you know, being careful about not allowing that to knock you off course and not to lash out at people who 
may have your best interest at heart and it may manifest itself in wanting you to be safe and secure, which may oftentimes manifest itself as a corporate job or as a steady job that gets you money in your, your bank account, food on the table, clothes on your back. So I really love those action items that you gave to the listeners around taking a moment to relax, you know, removing yourself from the situation and not lashing out and then really internalizing and thinking, why is this person saying this? What are they hoping that I'll learn from that? How can I incorporate that into my decision making? But speaking of decision making, I think it's a nice segue into the D, how to decide on a decision and how to determine your course of action. So we are at January 17th, 18th, 19th, we're about two and a half weeks into the new year. What are your thoughts on the decision you made? What are your thoughts today? How are you feeling after the breakthrough, the organization and leveraging different perspectives? Sort of where do you feel you are at this moment? I know it's still early at the outset of the bold move, but but what are you feeling right now? What What's going through your mind? Yeah, Paul, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question. I think, um, you know, people talk a lot about the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, and I think that's kind of what the last few weeks have been like. Uh, overall, net, super, super positive. I feel great about the decision. I think the first two weeks in the new year were really um, just a classic example. Like week one in January, I was super excited because I had so much time to focus on this venture I was passionate about. I was reconnecting with all my friends and networks in New York, and I was just kind of on this high, and things were going really well, like venture capitalists were reaching out to us. Then comes the following week, and I have to pay $8,000 to all my vendors, and our bank account balance is at negative $202, wow. and we're struggling, and I'm pulling funds from my personal account, and we're kind of piggybacking all our different kind of accounts payables against each other, where it's like, I can't pay you because this guy's being really tough on getting the payment ahead of time, and then saying the same thing to the other guy. Mm-hmm. So, like, total, one of those, like, kind of, like, classic, like, entrepreneurship moments where then the next week is just, like, a, a kind of, like, a blur and a panic. Um, so, you know, there really is those like ups and downs, but I think right now I'm feeling, I'm feeling very positive about what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, this part of the journey is never meant to be easy. Like bootstrapping is probably one of the harder parts of the entrepreneurship journey. And I think what I'm really valuing is just having more clarity and focus to really go after this. And every single day I'm kind of able to accomplish one or two kind of major milestones that may have otherwise taken a week when I was double having. So it feels good to have that increased productivity, um, you know, to kind of, see the momentum now that I'm able to have significant follow through on things. You know, the example of an investor, they're never going to be the person that moves the conversation forward. It's up to you to kind of be front of mind for them to follow up if you need to, to like literally show up at that firm and tell them why this is the company you need to invest in. Um, And so having the ability to have that level of perseverance and kind of really ability to pursue and kind of drive things forward, um, that feels really good. Um, And I think, you know, moving forward for the next six months, there's really two things that are top of mind for me. Uh, we finished developing our app. It just got approved on the App Store, and our developers are making one or two big changes. But other than that, it's all about understanding our user and how they engage with our product. Like, are we adding value? Where is that value? And how can we make this better? And two is raising our seed round by sometime mid Q2. So it's really good to have that focus and just be able to be relentlessly pursuing that. So um, I think this is the right decision. Um, and I think, you know, maybe this will work, maybe it won't. I think I'm steadfast in believing that it will. but. I don't think I'd ever have a chance to really find out unless I took the sleep. So it, it feels good. I totally agree. And, and and now that you're you're saying two and a half weeks in, I love the story about you know one week, the high is there, uh, then you reach a, an obstacle, or as we say in the corporate America, an opportunity. <laughs> 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 and so when you think about the, these past two weeks, what are uh, some th- some things you wish you had known uh, as you're in this world right now? What are some things that you thought you knew, but you learned sort of throughout the two weeks and, and what are some things you didn't expect and, and couldn't have prepared for? Yeah, I think like as much as you, as much as you understand volatility and prepare for it, it still gets you every single time, right? So there's only so much you can do to kind of like steal yourself against just like the kind of like the ups and the downs, just like by being a human being and having so much invested in an idea and also so much of your personal life invested in it. It's almost like, um, impossible to just completely ignore those things or not be affected by them mm-hmm. so i think like you know that was one thing that's that still always catches you by surprise in terms of things to things to know um and kind of like key takeaways um i would say it's just like the number of distractions that are there the more time you have the more things you can fill your time with mm-hmm. and it's really difficult um because to not chase the shiny new ball like every day you get a new email from someone about something else and i think you know, like a lot of like top-notch CEOs say the best thing they do is say no. That's an area that I've always struggled on, but now it's becoming more and more apparent because 
I really do have the ability to control my day. And so saying no to things just like crucial. And that's something that I want to continue to focus on over the next few weeks because I don't have the, I, I just don't have the time and the kind of like runway, so to speak, literally financially um, to spend time on things that aren't going to actually drive this company forward or drive impact. And then what advice do you have for people who are thinking about entrepreneurship? I know that it's, you were talking about in Silicon Valley is like a buzzword, people are just doing it to do it. But what advice do you have for people who are thinking about putting their idea into action, turning that idea or that dream into a venture or an initial startup? And then also what advice do you have for people who are entertaining bold moves? Yeah, absolutely. So for entrepreneurs or people that are considering jumping down that road, I think there's there's really two things. One is your idea, the thing that you want to do, like make sure you love it. Uh, make sure you read, actually there's three things. So the first is make sure that you really love it and that it's something that you really care deeply about because there will be really difficult times. You'll have to make sacrifices in your personal lives and kind of like everything that you do prevents you from doing something else. Mm-hmm. And it's going to get you through that is like that you actually care about what you're doing. You're invested in it and you're invested on the impact that it has on the world. That doesn't mean it needs to be a social impact thing. Like maybe you really care about, I don't know, the bottling industry. Maybe you really care about, um, you know, like food delivery services, whatever it is, but just make sure it's something you care about too. Um, surrounding yourself with the right people. Um, I actually interviewed um, a couple of founders of the Resolution Project and one of the kind of key points I took away from that was nothing worth starting is worth doing alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really resonated with me. Like you need people that understand what you're going through that can empathize with every step of your way. And that's one of the reasons my co-founder and I uh, jive so well. It's kind of like we're in the same boat. We've had a very similar journey. We've experienced all the same things and we can kind of commiserate and kind of understand the experiences and what we're going through. And that is invaluable. Um, And then the third thing is, if you can check those two buckets, just do it. There's no time better than right now. Um, I'm a really firm believer in life never gets less complicated. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The things that led to my bold move being now, like things are complex right now, but in five years, there's no way they're going to be less complex. Yeah. Um, So if you're thinking about it, you love it, you have the people around you, like take the chance. Your downside is you'll have the best learning experience of your life. Wow, so much action-packed advice in that segment and throughout the entire episode. I, I really meant it when I said at the top of the episode that you are wise beyond your years and that the listeners are going to learn something from all that you have to say and all that you're doing in this bold move into entrepreneurship and into really trying to help fight financial insecurity and to really bat down the predatory aspects of our, our lending and banking industry to ensure that people are really able to realize their true potential um, because money is power and with money you can have access to not only capital uh, but freedom to pursue things that make you happy and that can hopefully benefit the broader community. I, I know that we're out of time but before we go I just wanted to give the listeners a sense of where they can find you. I know that you're a contributing a writer uh, to many publications. I know you write a lot on LinkedIn and on Facebook. I know people are going to want to continue hearing your thoughts on a variety of issues from cryptocurrency to fintech to career and then really watch this journey. So so where can we find you and, and what are you going to be up to uh, after the, the app is in development and, and you start to test with your first batch of users? Yeah, Paul. Um, first of all, it's it's just been a pleasure to be on here with you. I think you are also someone that is wise beyond your years and it's just been fun to have this conversation with you and uh, hopefully this was engaging for your listeners and audience as well um, as far as where you can find me I'm super accessible um, social media is a great outlet uh, Twitter is um, Samir S-A-M-I-R 077 I'm on LinkedIn um, you know if you look me up with the Susu I'm sure you'll find me um, and how do you and- spell that so that people can find uh, the app I know how to spell it because I'm looking at it right now on my screen <laughs> but I want people to be able to find it spelled e-s-u-s-u it's actually what this practice is called in kind of west africa and it was a kind of like a catchy word that we felt resonated with this market as well so the susu spelled e-s-u-s-u um and then you're also always welcome to drop me an email um, which is available on my website it's also samir at samirgoyle.com my name is spelled s-a-m-i-r last name g-o-e-l so please reach out i do try my best to get back to people um, and would love to hear from you. Any ideas you have? Any suggestions? Um, yeah. And any any final thoughts? I know you you really I love the, the advice you gave in the determining course of action bucket. But any last words of wisdom to people listening who are thinking about just a bold move or anything that you've learned or just anything? I wanted to open up to you for the last fifteen seconds. Thanks, Paul. So I think it really just comes down to um, something I mentioned earlier, which is you know, like really find that thing that you're passionate about and pursue it. Um, I really think most people have a lot less downside than they think. 
and everyone's meant to do something different. And so I think today it's really easy to let what other people are doing dictate what you spend your time doing. And I'd really encourage you to find that thing that makes you kind of come alive and find a way to pursue it. Um, you know, if you really go in with that attitude, there's, there's not a lot of obstacles that can stop you. I couldn't have said it any better. Thank you so much, Samir, for coming on to the 31st official episode of The Riley Rant. Thank you all for tuning in. And I'll be sure to post Samir's information at the bottom of this episode. For all those listening, remember, if it's Sunday, it's time to rant. If it's Sunday, it's The Riley Rant.